Once again do I behold these steep and lofty cliffs, that on a wild secluded scene impress thoughts of more deep seclusion, and connect the landscape with the quiet of the sky. Excerpt from Tintern Abbey by William Wordsworth College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. This past summer, we offered our first round of summer symposiums in the Magnus Fellowship. Enjoy this excerpt from Helen Free's course comparing the views of the early and late Romantic poets, William Wordsworth and Percy Bysshe Shelley. All right. Well, nice to meet you all. Um, I don't see any familiar faces from my Tolkien courses, so it's always nice then to uh, to meet to meet new people and new friends around the country. Um, I'm currently in Gallup, New Mexico, and. Uh, it's hot in my house too, Nicole, across the across the city, across the you. neighborhood, across the neighborhood, um, and I think a storm is coming in too, which is kind of rare for uh, for Gallup. But no, thank you so much for taking an evening out of your summer, especially right before the Fourth of July weekend, to come online and join me in in this discussion about uh, about the Romantic poets. Nicole was just expressing, um, I think, truth, which is. In our contemporary time, we're not really used to poetry. Um, we're not really a reading culture anymore. And that's a huge loss, I think, for the human imagination and the human person, uh, because instead of forming our own images from the power of our own mind, um, based on the words that we read, we're reforming images that someone else has already given to us. And so in some sense, we're already shaped by someone else's imagination as a opposed to, to really exercising uh, the power of the imagination on our own that can arise either from circumstances uh, within, uh, within nature um, or through the reading of other great, uh, of other great works. Um, so anyways, reading poetry can be a challenge. Uh, so let me also just see, did you all have a chance to read the three poems that I, that I sent out? Okay, good. Thank you. Reason for that is we only have an hour together, so there's not very much time to discuss these uh, this really rich time period as well as uh, these uh, wonderful uh, wonderful poets. So it's a little bit help, more helpful knowing that you all have, have at least read the text um, read the text ahead of time. Um, last question is: uh, How many of you are, are familiar with the Romantic period in literature? Okay, and you're uh, Gregory. Yes. Okay. How are you familiar with it? What of your background uh, makes you familiar with it? Uh, I'm an English teacher and I love romanticism. So. Okay. (laughs) Good. Anybody else familiar with romantics? Yeah, not many are. That's why why I wasn't sure what what Gregory's particular circumstances would be that would allow him to be familiar with them. Um, Most people um, are uh, familiar at least with the major romantic poets, um, like John Keats, for instance. Uh, and so that might at least ring a bell from, from high school or, or college in English classes that you took. But 
Um, I personally love the romantics. My particular area is actually J.R.R. Tolkien, which is why I teach a, a course for Magnus um, on Tolkien. Um, and J.R.R. Tolkien detested the romantics. He hated the romantics. He actually hated everything uh, from Shakespeare on. He thought that was the modern period and he had uh, real problems with, uh, with modernity. But I think that uh, I won't question uh, Tolkien, but what I will say is that there is something within the Romantic period that I find very exciting and uh, points in many ways to uh, a problem that we already see now within our postmodern culture, precisely having to do with the, uh, the dual perspective we have about the individual. On the one hand, elevating the individual to divine heights um, almost exclusive height, heights that we have the ability, um, as the now overturned uh, KCV Pennsylvania case said, we have got the ability to define our own reality. Um, so you've got that, on the one hand, that element of individualism in which the individual is everything. Uh, and then you have almost a concurrent view that the individual is, is nothing, uh, that everything in many ways determines what the person does. So in some sense, it's a stripping away of free will. And the person becomes very insignificant in this extremely vast universe, which as we know more about science, we see how, how large it is, how expansive it is, and thus how teeny tiny we actually are within the universe. Um, and so I don't know psych psychologically what you would call that, um, but certainly it is, a, it is a fractured view of the human person. And you see in the Romantic period, uh, the beginning of that fracturing, um, and this would be for a longer course, and because we only do have an hour, I will say that I'm going to be painting with a pretty broad brush with a lot of these, uh, a lot of these examinations and statements. Um, they are true, but they would need a lot more evidence or back, backing up than what I have time to do today. Um, but I think that you can argue that the fracturing begins already a few centuries prior to our poets, the Romantic period, the early 1800s. I think you already begin to see that fracturing when you have a fundamental separation between uh, the creator and creation, between man and God. And that begins uh, really theologically um, in the 16th century. It continues on philosophically um, into the late 17th, into the 18th century. But then it begins, you could say, poetically in, in regards to what the Romantics do uh, in the early 19th century, so in the early 1800s. And I wanted to focus tonight's mini-seminar uh, on this understanding of nature, um, because both where we are now regarding the view of nature, um, as well as where we've come from, uh, we've got a, a, a real shift in what happens regarding the relationship between nature and man uh, that begins to occur. And so I wanted to begin actually about a century before the Romantic period um, with what is called the, the Restoration period or the Neoclassical period. Um, with one of the major poets of that period, um, who is Alexander Pope. And the reason I want to bring in with him is I want you to see how did people view nature immediately after, um, you could say, the, the rise of science or in the age of reason. 
which is the the 1700s. Um, so already, what was the view of nature at that point? And uh, there's several works I could have chosen, but I chose, an, I chose Alexander Pope um, for two major reasons. One, his essay on criticism is his attempt to put into poetry a prose argument. Um, so it's like the challenge to himself that he wanted to do, to make a, a type of argument about literary criticism, but within a, a poetical form. And within that poem itself, Essay on Criticism, he expresses, I think, very clearly um, what the understanding of nature remained. Um, and so that's the first thing that I want to examine is just Alexander Pope's uh, own views of, of nature. Um, I try to give you discussion questions. We may go over all of those, doubtful given the time. Um, but even if we don't, it's things to help you in reading the poems and, and in thinking uh, and thinking about thinking about them. So before we launch into, uh, into Pope and this understanding of nature, let me just see if you all have any, any general questions so far. Okay, and given the format, uh, I don't always see if there's a hand raised, so feel free to unmic yourself and just, and just interrupt me if you have a question. Um, I don't consider that um, rude or, or anything like that. Uh, so again, um, Alexander Pope. Uh, Pope was a bit of an anomaly in his time, um, precisely because he was a Roman Catholic. Um, and Catholics at the time were very much persecuted um, within, uh, within England. And so even though he remained a lifelong adherent to Roman Catholicism, he also suffered under many of the anti-Catholic laws at the time. So for instance, there were restrictions against Roman Catholics living within the, uh, the confines of London. And so Pope had to live outside of London. Uh, there were laws against Catholics attending the public universities. And so uh, Pope was privately, he was privately tutored. Um, he himself physically was a very ugly man. Um, he had a, some sort of growth stunt. His uh, spine was twisted, uh, so he didn't cut a very handsome figure of a man, but he was extremely intelligent. He had extremely sharp uh, wit, a uh, sharp tongue, and a, a really keen pen, which, uh, which he put to use. Um, Pope's poetry at the time was extremely popular. Um, this form of poetry no longer really is what, what we find interesting or uh, invigorating, almost precisely because of what Pope says makes for good poetry. And so what he says makes for good poetry is this strict adherence to a metrical form, um, strict adherence to, uh, to meter, uh, to a rhyme scheme. And so you'll notice in Essay on Criticism, if you take a look at it, um, you've got two lines of rhyming verse and it's written in what's called the iambic pentameter. <coughs> so two lines of uh, rhyming iambic pentameter are called in poetical terms, a heroic couplet. Um, and Pope is the master of the heroic couplet really in the English in the English language. And so again, for us, poetry, and this is precisely because of the influence of who will come after uh, Pope, the romantics, poetry for us, um, in many ways, we want poetry to be a type of emotional experience or some type of revelation of some type of uh, 
spiritual or emotional state that the prose, just just regular words, um, can't achieve as well as the the more keen presentation that poetry offers through really its symbols and it, and its and its metaphors. So for us, again, poetry is like a vehicle for you could say private revelation. But for men of Pope's era, uh, poetry um, wasn't supposed to be type of inspiration. It was supposed to be a type of public utterance. And so in that sense, Pope very much embraces a, a formality within poetry, both in what he examines and in the way that he examines it. Um, we also don't find the poetry, most of us don't, the poetry of the Restoration or neoclassical period, again, that's the 1700s, 18th century, uh, because so much of it is, um, is a type of imitation, is an imitation of the Roman classical style that preceded them, obviously, by, by centuries. Um, but for them, that was a good thing. Imitation was a good thing. And the more, in some sense, artificial you could be, um, the better, because you're following the example and the rules that have been set um, that have been set before you. Um, so really brief in this essay on criticism, what I'd want you to get from it uh, is a couple of things. Um, first of all, Pope is examining the very question the romantics will later also take up, which is um, what's the truest and the best type of poetry? Um, ought it to be natural? Um, or ought it to be written according to predetermined rules from this classical past. Uh, and Pope obviously is going to come down on the side of uh, basically predetermined rules from a classical past. So his own strict adherence to this form, the heroic couplet, um, shows where he stands on the natural question of, uh, of poetry. Uh, and that is no, it, it needs to follow strict metrical rules. Uh, and again, that's the, that's the heroic couplet. Um, just to look really fast, just to show you, make sure you know what, what I'm talking about. We'll just look at, this wasn't from Poetry Foundation, the, the lines weren't numbered, but roughly on my third page of the printout from Poetry Foundation, let's just look at what he says about nature. This would be line 68, but... Um, even if you don't have it, just listen to it. He says, first follow nature and your judgment frame by her just standard, which is still the same. Um, so frame and same rhyme, the end word rhymes. Uh, An erring nature still divinely bright, one clear, unchanged and universal light. Um, so again, heroic couplet there. Um, pentameter, iambic pentameter, means there's gonna be uh, five stresses, 10 syllables in, uh, in the line. So you can just count it out on your fingers. First, follow nature and your judgment frame. So there's 10. So uh, by her just standard, which is still the same. So again, 10 syllables. Um, and typically if you hear it, the I am is a beat that goes bump, 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 bump. And that's the natural rhythm of the English language. Um, I don't speak another language, but I've been told that other languages follow a different metrical, uh, different metrical pattern. Um, so first, he, he has some, some um, variations, but first follow, I'll emphasize it, first follow nature and your judgment frame. 
by her just standard, which is still the same. Um, so there's always some variations, but uh, the majority uh, meter in that line is bump, 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 which is an I am. Um, so anyways, there's an example of the heroic couplet that, uh, that Pope is famous for. And these are some of the lines that, that I want to talk about to it. But what I think is interesting about this emphasis on form is the why. And Pope tells us why, even within this poem, why one ought to follow the strict form. Uh, and just to just like, give it away for the sake of time, uh, he says it's because of, of nature herself. He adheres to this idea of an unchanging law of nature. And as much as poetry draws its source from nature, uh, then it also has to follow the strict laws of nature. So poetry for Pope reflects natural law uh, in both how poetry is formed and even in what the subject matter of poetry um, ought to be. Um, he goes on and it, both part one and also there's a part two to this. And within nature, we see already variations within nature. Overall, there's a pattern, but nature also has variations within it. Um, so he says, thus within poetry, the poet also can, can transcend uh, these rules with variation, but again, within limits. You can't just go crazy um, the way we see E.E. E. Cummings do, if you know E.E. E. Cummings. Uh, I always reference her, uh, his famous um, poem called Leaf Falling. I don't know if you know that. It's totally a visual. It's really hard on Zoom unless I had a, a, a board. Just write down Leaf Falling and look it up yourself because Cummings basically uses the visual of the, of the letters to be like a leaf falling. Um, it's hard to explain. But anyways, completely breaks all, um, all rules for, for poetry in the 20th century, jumping ahead uh, three centuries from Pope. Um, but again, for Pope, uh, the poet has to remain within the confines of, of rules, of order, because that's what nature herself does. So for Pope, poetry, if it's true art, it has to imitate nature, and nature herself, in turn, reflects the divine order of God himself. Um, man's reason most reflects God and the poet because he is a rational man, should create rational poetry, which isn't focused on opinion, but it's focused on, uh, on, on fact. So in many ways, this whole essay, the essay on criticism, is Pope's own amb ambitious attempt to use the poetical form instead of the prose form to make an argument on this very issue, basically what makes for true art, what makes for poetry, and this emphasis on, uh, on nature. What does the poet do? Well, the poet has to follow nature. Nature has to frame, um, has to frame, you see, the argument and the form for, uh, for the poet. Um, so let me stop there and see if you have any questions on, on what we're talking about with, with Pope and nature and particularly why we're talking about it. I would uh, just say that Cummings leaf falling is a pure distillation of the imitation of nature. A pure distillation of, of nature. It's a pure distillation of the imitation of nature. Mm. Because I mean, he's, using, he's using the right. visual form. 
I mean, because he's representing a leaf falling. I'm being facetious. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, some could make that argument, Ron, that that is what's happening. I mean, it's an interesting it's an interesting way to approach um, to approach it. But again, it takes poetry to something other than perhaps it is into a different category, like the Cummings category of, uh, of visual, of visual words. Um, okay. Any questions about where we're going? Well, you know, not to drag into a segue, but, but what Ron just said, put me in mind of, uh, something that my, I, I just finished a major in computer science, some, some graduate work in computer science. And it's interesting because we imitate nature in a lot of modern algorithms, but we do kind of the same thing that Ron just described where we computer scientists gave up a long time ago on figuring out what, for example, intelligence means. And so instead you take something like the Turing test and say, we're just going to make something that looks like intelligence to a human. And it, it sounds like, I haven't read the poem, so I can't make a fair assessment, but it, it, it sounds like Mr. or uh, like Cummings has made a poem that tries to physically look like the pattern of a leaf falling. And that might be, like Ron said, a more pure representation of what nature looks like to us, but it also might be a shallower reflection of nature. And, and it's a, sort of maybe an abandonment of the attempt to to get to the source i i don't know though <laughs> i might be stepping out of my uh, my bounds no no i think i think that's an interesting response um well again take a look at what we're talking about with that 20th century poem um leaf falling to understand what we're talking about i mean it's so it's so anti-pope anti-alexander pope that it stands as kind of a dramatic contrast to what Pope would be holding up as, uh, as true art. Um, and again, true art has to reflect nature and nature herself reflects the mind of God, which is, which is perfect order. Um, and so again, still with the mid, uh, early to mid 18th century, you do have this emphasis regarding nature. As I asked you, what does Pope mean by nature? Um, and what it, what it means by it is the it's the order and the reason in the universe, which is present because God himself made nature. And so nature and the laws of nature, they themselves reflect uh, the order in the mind of, of God. And so there's still a very strong anchoring regarding nature as herself, a type of, of servant of God, creation of God. Um, this begins to get unmoored, unanchored uh, in the ensuing um, decades, and then into the next century, into the, the 1800s. Um, I think it's important to see, uh, in some sense, what the romantics are responding to regarding nature and how they themselves then begin to, to shift the argument. Uh, in many ways, the one that is more recognizable to our own century, 21st century, um, I think, in fact, what the romantics present is more recognizable to us than it would have been to the preceding century, if that makes sense. Um, how they begin to emphasize the role of um, individual perception and individual uh, individual imagination. Um, I try. I don't want to again myself go off on a tangent, but just making sure everyone's on the same historical page. Um, when I've taught undergraduates, 
I've always been really a bit shocked to realize how um, a historical people are. They don't they don't remember that these events took place in this century. These events took place in that century, um, and so. What, what comes between, you could say, the Restoration period and the Romantics is a, is a real period of political revolution. Um, and so you have two major revolutions that occur in the late 18th century um, that many would argue obviously are the direct result of the ideas that precede it. So again, actions always follow ideas. Um, and so in the late 18th century, you very much have this rise of an understanding of individual liberties, of the rights of, com of the common man, um, and the, the loss of authority of monarchs over, uh, over the people. Um, and so both in America as well as in France, you have major revolutions against the monarchy and new systems of government that are set up. Um, the American uh, Republic was much more successful than the original French Republic. It was also much less bloody. Um, but there was lots of calls to overthrow the British monarch within England itself as well. Uh, and it's a whole other story of how that got to be avoided. But England avoided those political revolutions that overturned uh say the monarchies in other countries. America obviously cast off the monarchy for America. Uh, France killed off their king and, and regicide and all of the aristocrats as well in their attempt to form the, the French Republic. So our romantic poets, they in, in many ways arise you know, from this era, uh, from this era of, of revolution. And the first poet to talk about, uh, which is the poet William Wordsworth, um, he himself was a revolutionary. He initially wanted to have a political revolution um, that then he, he went down to join the French Revolution, in fact. Um, but so many of the English revolutionaries that joined the French Revolution um, and they thought, yay, overthrow the monarch. They were so horrified and disgusted at, at how that revolution turned and turned so quickly to be almost this chaotic uh, bloodbath, that they came back very disillusioned. You know, the ideals that they'd gone down to France with regarding um, the ultimate fundamental goodness of man and the rights of the, of the poor to assert themselves over the aristocrats, um, it became disillusioned when they saw how bloody the French Revolution actually, uh, actually became. Um, and so Wordsworth himself, he returns to England, yet he still has a strong democratic spirit, and it turns towards poetry um, instead of pol political revolution. Um, and so one could argue that the revolution that occurs in England, instead of being a political revolution, is itself a type of poetic revolution, um, which through its own influence on culture, um, helps to turn more hearts in England towards the ideas that were um, were, were fomenting and fomenting uh, political revolutions uh, themselves. Most of the Romantics, and I think this is very important, most of the Romantics do not come from the upper class. They're not aristocrats. I think the the most glaring exception to that is uh, one of the later Romantics who is an aristocrat, Lord George Byron. Um, but William Wordsworth 
is middle class, and most of the romantics are themselves um, middle class. And the reason why I say I think that's important is that um, the middle class had to make their own way. They were neither poor nor were they rich. Um, they made their own way most often through business um, and through business dealings um, to reach the middle class. And some of them were quite wealthy, um, but they were wealthy businessmen. Um, so again, if you're at all familiar with Jane Austen, again, a writer from this period, uh, she, she writes many characters who are of this upper middle class. They can never be aristocrats, but they're often wealthier than the, than the aristocrats. But the major issue with them is that they have no, um, they have no title. Um, and it's important because those poets then can focus on the importance of, uh, of the person. Um, they can't really claim any authority for themselves on tradition or on bloodline. Uh, the authority they claim for themselves in many ways is the worth of the person. So the worth of the individual, individual person. Uh, a lot of people say romantics, that the word has come to mean, um, love poetry or something having to do with love. Um, but that's not actually the, 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 the meaning of romantic poetry. Uh, romantic poetry has to do with this emphasis on uh, emotions and passions rather than on this neoclassical emphasis on reason and order. So very much what the romantic movement wants to do is to cast off what they saw were almost shackles of reason, um, reason that was so tightly binding on the human person that it, it didn't allow for the creativity that they also saw as essential to the human person. It didn't allow for the, uh, uh, even the emotional, um, the emotional experience, which they saw as, as being so key um, to, uh, to the human person. Um, so before we get right into to Wordsworth, let me just stop and see if you all have any, uh, any questions. Um, I don't know if you're going to talk about this or not, because I'm not sure it's apropos, but the romantics idea, which I think comes from, uh, can't think of his name, Burke, uh, of the sublime, uh, their reaction to nature, um, you know, as, as a sublime um, sort of a metaphysical experience. Um, how does that differ or how does that um how is that in opposition to where Pope is, you know, viewing nature through the eyes of reason? God is reasonable. God created the universe. Uh, God, you know, is a, uh, although this, I'm sorry, I'm going to get off track here. Although it's reflected in Blake later on, right, who's very early romantic, um, with his whole idea of the, the God who designs the universe, almost like a, a Masonic God, um, there's, I think there's definitely a split between the God of reason of say Pope and, and even before him, Milton um, and, and of course Dryden and then the romantics and how they start to have this reaction to nature, which it's more of, not that it's unreasonable, but it's more of an emotional reaction. This idea of the sublime, that's, that's all. I just wanted to know if you're going to talk about that at all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm actually glad you, you brought up William Blake. Because even though he's considered sort of one of these uh, uh, bridge poets, um, he very much also begins this separation of the poetry from the, the purely rational approach to the world, 
Uh, and his poetry does become much more um, topical. He's focused on uh, the abuses. Many of his, much of his poetry is focused on the abuses that are going on even within England. And so he already begins uh, this type of revolutionary use of poetry to affect social change. Um, you also see that uh, with the famous uh, Scots poet, um, Bobby Burns, if you're familiar with his, with his work and his songs. Um, but yes, Ron, to answer your question, uh, the approach or the, the, the view of God and nature and, what, and the difference that we're going to see with the romantics that we'll cover in just a second, um, I think is quite, is quite drastic. Um, because as you, as you just said, uh, John Dryden, Alexander Pope, they still do have this, uh, this firm understanding of reason and its connection to nature and to God. Um, but let's look at what happens with this within both poems. And again, broad brushes here. I think that we could spend an entire semester looking at this to see what happens. How does this change happen? Um, the details of the work. But I want to at least touch on it so that you see what does begin to happen um, with William Wordsworth. It's 1798 that uh, the lyrical ballads are published. And this is the, the revolutionary work of um, William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Um, and so the first edition is published in 1798. And this is what is considered the start of the Romantic period, the early Romantic period. Um, Shelley will be one of the later romantics, but it's in the uh, preface to the lyrical ballads that Wordsworth in prose form sets out the rationale. What is this poetical manifesto um, that, uh, that he and Coleridge are about to write? You know, what is it that the reader is about to see? And essentially within this, he says that uh, language has to come down from the aristocrats and be put back into the common man. And so they said, we're gonna write poetry in the language of, uh, of common man. Um, so he says, real men saying real things. Um, he says the subject matter um, needs to be what's rustic and what's common. It, it shouldn't be what's elevated. It shouldn't be, again, what the aristocrats might discuss in their parlor rooms. He says that the subject matter for poetry um, what happens in a, in a farmer's garden or in a, a field is more important than what's happening within uh, the king's chambers. Um, so the humble, humblest things and the activities that ought to be exalted. Um, he also says that poetry should be spontaneous. And this is really important. He says different from Pope. Um, poetry should be spontaneous and come from feeling not from thought. Thought obviously will shape the feeling, but it's got to be the feeling that will first emerge within um, the, the poetical focus. Um, Sorry, yeah. I do have a question about that. Now, is that in writing poetry? I know there's kind of the cliche of like, you need a babbling brook to write poetry. And I think that kind of comes from a caricature of romanticism or is it in reading poetry that it should be more spontaneous, less rigid? In the writing of poetry is what Wordsworth says in the, in the um, introduction to lyrical ballads. So okay. in the actual writing of it. Okay. I, I find it so strange because they do seem like neurotic people. I know his sister Dorothy, I guess you can, um, 
get her diaries and every day for years she would detail the sunrise. Like it was just this weird, very meticulous person. So, so. Well, I think I think a photograph of the daily sunrise, mm-hmm. but I can't say yeah. I, I detail it in poetic form. Well, I think we part might of that be unsung hero of the next literary movement. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think there could be a reason for that, Gregory, though I've never expressed it till you just asked that question, you know, what's the source of the neuroses? I think part <laughs> of the source of the neuroses is that because they had such a desperate need for achieving a type of meaning in the world, and this in many results is, again, pendulum swings of things, um, because they felt so confined by the previous century's overemphasis on science and reason, um, and as science and reason expanded and showed in many ways the universe to be bigger and bigger and bigger than anyone ever could have conceived, and that made man smaller and smaller and smaller, and at the same time, the existence or the role of God was really getting uh, muddied up. Um, the idea of a clockwork God that set everything in motion Um, even to the point of people beginning to reject the very idea of God. Um, God, if he can't be proved, it doesn't exist. Um, Or if he does exist, he just set all these these, uh, physical things in motion and then has just stepped back. So people in the 1800s are really dealing with this, I think, um, existential struggle of where is the meaning of, of my own life? Uh, with the rise of this understanding of individual liberty, on the one hand, we say, oh, that's wonderful and that's great uh, that you've got this rise of a sense of individual liberties. But there's also a problem that arises with that. Um, And it's one that we often don't think about because we've lived so long in an American understanding of, uh, of, of individual rights. But when you're born into a system where you you are born, you live, and you die in one spot with one job that your father had. Someone takes care of you in a greater sense regarding whoever is the landowner of the aristocrat. Um, there's not a lot of extra thinking that has to happen regarding your existence. God is, the king is, and and I'm his servant. So in some sense, your, your role in life is, is pretty much defined for you. But when suddenly you're given this option of, no, you have free will and you're able to choose this path or this path or that path, um, there are a lot more, you could say, existential crises that can come in and give a person a sense of real angst. As in, if I have this power of choice and of will, and it in some sense is a God-given power and I have God-given liberties, what do I do with them? Um, And so I think part of that neuroses that you see in the romantic poets is this attempt that that they almost desperately need to achieve meaning for themselves. And that meaning is achieved, as we see with Wordsworth, through this interaction with nature. Um, This, in some sense, is where you can find both solace, um, joy, peace, um, but it has to do with this relationship that arises between nature and the self. And so perhaps Dorothy was writing about the sunrises every single morning as a way of communing with God, lowercase g, if that makes sense. Um, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, but um, that's kind of my, that's kind of my guess regarding, regarding the sheer amount of neuroses that you see. 
But you also see, because there is a type of um, liberality, sexual liberality that arises in the 18th century and then into the 19th century, um, in which the ideas of marriage and the confines of marriage are being questioned and even um, thrown out the window. We see that with Percy Bysshe Shelley. You see that with later romantic like Byron. In Lord which Byron, it, definitely. Yeah. What? Definitely Lord Byron. Yeah, definitely <laughs> Lord Byron. Um, he's not on there, so I'm not even going to soundtrack it because of the time. Um, but Shelley himself, to say already now, uh, well, say with Wordsworth. Wordsworth went to France. Um, he had a French lover. Um, he had a child by her when the French revolution really got bloody and they were just about killing everybody. A lot of the English left France to go back to England and Wordsworth left his lover and his child, uh, in France. Um, and it caused you know, almost a, a huge, um, uh, breakdown. He has an emotional breakdown um, when he comes back to England. And that actually, spoiler, is part of the poem, Tintern Abbey. But Shelley also, uh, Shelley very much thought that marriage sounds modern day. It was sort of the um, the patriarchal the patriarchal structure. And so he completely rejects marriage, ideas of marriage. Um, he has many lovers, um, many illegitimate children. He finally takes up with Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein, uh, but his doing so results in the suicide of a previous lover. It's it's all really quite, I don't know, PG-13 slash R. PG-13 with Shelley, R when you get to Byron, I think, R-rated. Um, yeah, so you have already then this breakdown, moral breakdown, um, that is also occurring at this time, um, which I think makes sense when you begin to separate things from the bedrock of uh, of, of God, as in some sense the source of, of the law of nature and um, of our own, even our own political system. Um, but let's get to uh, Tintern Abbey. And again, my apologies, I guess an hour just isn't, really is not sufficient for, uh, uh, for, the, for the depth of, of what's going on here. But keep in mind, again, what are the romantics themselves trying to do with poetry? And you owe it to yourselves to read the preface to the lyrical ballads. It's very interesting. Um, and not just for English, English nerds like myself and, and Gregory. Um, but it's, it's actually quite Thanks interesting. Thanks for including me in that. Well, I won't include you. The no, 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 thank you for, I love the, the rank of English nerds. So thank you. Okay. <laughs> um, but I'm it's not limited. It's not limited to English. Um, English majors or English professors. It's very interesting. So what are the romantics trying to do with poetry? They're absolutely trying to take nature back from the rationalists and to place the aesthetic or the aesthetical as a good in and of itself. Um, and so they, they don't, they no longer want um, uh, reason to, in some sense, control the things that reason can't control. Uh, they want to hold up the individual's imagination, not his reason, but his imagination as this authentic form of judgment um, and even as the prime power of creation. Uh, so in some sense, if you're looking at a hierarchy, previous, uh, previous centuries would have said reason was the highest and reason controls the passions and the emotions. Um, the romantics begin to turn that on its head and they would say, no, it's the, it's the emotions and the imagination of man that then reason serves. So man's reason can shape these, 
uh, nebulous forms that the imagination conceives of or in, interprets. Um, so it's a real shifting up of the hierarchy of the human person, uh, the human person itself. So in Tintern Abbey, um, I'd ask you to think about what Wordsworth means, initially means by nature, and how he begins to transform it uh, within the poem. So in other words, what is nature at the beginning of the poem? What has it become by the end of the poem? Um, so let me toss that out to you to see if you have an answer for it. And for many of you, this is about your first time reading Tim Abbey, and that's just fine. So in the beginning of the poem, um, well, let's turn to the text. Uh, what's the scene? Can someone set the scene for us? Just literally? Uh, these waters rolling from their mountain springs with a sweet inland murmur. Once again, do I behold these steep and lofty cliffs, which on a wild secluded scene impress thoughts of more deep seclusion and connect the landscape with the quiet of the sky. Um, let me stop for just a minute. That's one sentence. I should have started it from the very beginning. Five years have passed, five summers with the length of five long winters. And again, I hear these waters rolling. Um, this, uh, this is iambic pentameter. But the very, very key difference from this iambic pentameter from uh, Alexander Pope's is there's no end rhyme. Um, and so this is not a heroic couplet because he's not rhyming the end lines. Uh, and so this is what's called blank verse. And this is what Wordsworth considered the natural conversation of man. In many ways, if you weren't looking at that, if you're just listening to me read it, it sounds like a sentence. It sounds almost like a natural sentence that someone might say, someone who was very articulate. Um, but five years have passed, five summers with the length of five long winters. And again, I hear these waters rolling from their mountain springs with a sweet inland murmur, you know, period. Um, so this is, the, this is the type of poetry that Wordsworth says ought to be written because it, is, it reflects the language that people use in a non-poetry -poet setting. Um, and yet it's still a, a very strict form. It'd be really tough for most people to write the type of poetry that Wordsworth writes to make it sound so natural. Um, and, yet, uh, and yet he does it. Um, but he still himself is following a pretty strict metrical, um, metrical form. So in the beginning, nature is simply just this natural world around us. Um, what does it become by the end of the poem? goes from lowercase in nature to uppercase in nature. In um, line 90, it says, well, I guess it starts on 89. For I've learned to look on nature, not as in the hour of thoughtless youth, but hearing oftentimes the still sad music of humanity. So I know he had thoughtless youth. He mentioned something about um, it's around 75, I think, um, when he says it's, to me was all in all, mm -hmm. but um, not really. What he means by all in all, um, I cannot paint with nature them. was everything. Um, yes, everything. Every now he's able to distinguish parts of it. Maybe this still sad music of humanity. Okay, good. It sounds like it's definitely matured him in some ways. Mm -hmm. There's but, good. Yeah. Okay. So nature, the natural world, 
begins to move into man's relationship with the natural world. So what does he hear within it? But as he says, the sad still music of, where is that again? Oh, humanity, um, yes. There of you humanity. Go. So that obviously is the human relationship with this natural order. Um, but it's going to keep going regarding the buildup of nature. Um, and this goes to, I think our line numbers are might be a little bit different. Um, if you go a little bit over to lines 100, um, and this is where he talks about the, the motion and the spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thoughts and rolls through all things. Um, well, nature um, begins to be this pantheistic force. Initially, it's just sort of the natural world order that's around you. But as the poem progresses, we begin to see how much more powerful is this force of nature which the, the nature that you're seeing right in front of you in some sense reflects and is a part of um, it itself. Like the stream is not nature with a capital N, but it's all part of this, of his life force. Um, I always feel like I'm talking about that movie with the bright blue aliens in it, where the guy goes into the alternate universe. What's it called? You know, Avatar? Avatar. Avatar. Thank you. I always feel like I'm talking about Avatar when I begin talking about Wordsworth and nature. Um, I think that guy must have probably read a little bit too much Wordsworth in his early days. Um, Yeah, and at the end of the poem, notice what he says. He says, he's reflecting that he's looking at the scene now with his sister, and so it holds new meaning for him. And he says, um, that I, so long a worshiper of nature, hither came unwearied in that service. Um, So he finally sees that nature becomes a god, goddess, a deity of some type, um, and that he is a worshiper of this deity. Um, Now, in Wordsworth, is the nature deity uh, beneficent or malevolent? Does it do good things for man or bad things for man? It says he can solve problems if properly engaged. I would say it's uh, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Nature is good. Uh, in fact, nature is the is the one thing that man can find uh, a type of transcendent joy and solace in. Um, and it's something that's completely contrary to what one could argue is the Enlightenment view of things is towards back towards the beginning of the poem. Um, he says, um, he's talking about the forms, these though absent long, these forms of beauty, what he what he remembers having seen previous uh, on a previous occasion. He says they haven't been to me as is a landscape to a blind man's eye. Uh, so he says it's not just it's not just imagery. This is a true vision that I've been that I was given and that sustained me. But then he goes on in that same section. He says what he owes to it, and he says. To them, these memories of beauty, I may have owed another gift of aspect more sublime, that blessed mood in which the burden of the mystery, in which the heavy and the weary weight of all this unintelligible world is lightened. Um, So right there is almost an anti-enlightenment statement that Wordsworth is giving. Um, What does, in some sense, uh, the demand for intelligibility do but it begins to wear and weight you down when his words were says there are aspects of the world, which are unintelligible. And if your reason can't then 
grasp them and contain them, what happens? But you get worn down, heavy, weary weight, and it gets lightened. Well, again, what is lightening that mood? But this uh, this interaction with this spirit of nature, the, the memory of the aesthetic, the memory of the beauty, um, the reality of the beauty of nature that's there. And as it continues on, um, even this actual power that's present, this actual existence of a power that is present, which when you finally put aside your reason and you, you in some sense, let the emotions, let the experience uh, completely take you over, you enter into a type of, of trance. He says, we are laid asleep uh, in body and become a living soul well, with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy we see into the life of things. Um, so right there, Wordsworth is, is suggesting that far from reason's ability to help you transcend meaning or transcend knowledge, um, it's rationality itself that holds you back. And it's only when you enter into fully this, um, this experience that you can then as he says, see into the life of things. You participate in this um, in this life force that's there. Note the very next line. This is the sagera that's that's really important um, because this whole poem itself is is expressing a really strong emotion that the poet is attempting to try to to constrain so he doesn't he doesn't lose it. Um, right there, he almost loses it. He says, if this be but a vain belief, and then the sagera interrupts the meter. That's the long dash. Um, boom. He goes, yet, oh, how oft in darkness. What was he going to say? He stops himself. What was he going to say? If this be but a vain belief, what's left? You know, what's left for man? But in some sense, just the life of, of science, um, which for Wordsworth, does not hold the meaning or the passion or the intensity of the life of the imagination and imagination as it's shared with, uh, with nature herself. Um, so we've got a lot of things that I hope already you're seeing uh, very different from what has, what has preceded him, very preceded in both in form as well as in, in what he's saying. But let's jump forward to the really important lines of this poem um, that illustrate uh, Wordsworth's own view of uh, nature really as a, as a pantheistic force. And this is this presence that he, that he talks about um, towards the end of the poem. For me, it's line 95. But he says, I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns, and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and in the mind of man. Um, so man is not separate from any of this. Man is an intimate part of all of this, uh, this presence that's there. Um, this is not a, it's not a Christian presence. Uh, Wordsworth will later return to a more orthodox view of Christianity. Um, this is definitely not a, a, a Christian theology that, that Wordsworth is, is putting forth. Um, but he goes on. He says, uh, emotion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. Um, so stop right there. 
So where is the mind of man in this? Where, where could you say is his rationality? Um, but it's a part of this. It's a part of this presence, but it can't control the presence. The presence itself rolls through all things, including the mind, uh, the mind of man. Um, so in many ways, the only way to experience this uh, is, is not through reason, but it's going to be through emotion and uh, and experience. You know, sometimes if you don't even have words for something, but you're allowing yourself to experience the, the majesty of the power of an other. Um, for me out West, you know, I've experienced that more than I ever did in the Midwest, but even in the Midwest, there were times of nature, like a huge thunderstorm or something where sometimes you can kind of understand where, where Wordsworth is getting this sense of the external power um, which man has has absolutely no control over. But let me just finish this little theological statement that he's making. So he says, therefore, am I still a lover of the meadows and the woods and mountains and of all that we behold? Excuse me. Of all that we behold from this green earth, of all the mighty world of eye and ear, both what they half create and what perceive. Um, so stop for just a second right there. Uh, Wordsworth is suggesting that uh, interrelationship between the creative function of the imagination, um, the imagination itself has a role in this. It's half creating something, but it's not exclusively creating it, but it has a role in it. Um, so continue. Well, pleased to recognize the nature and the language of the sense, again, the, the emotions, uh, the anchor of my purest thoughts, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul of all my being. Um, so again, it's nature and the senses that anchor reason and thoughts, not, not the other way around. Um, and uh, so this is Wordsworth. Uh, again, completely different from what Pope is suggesting is the role of nature and man in which man would get his source um, from, uh, from nature, but would order it, uh, that man has to follow already the, the dictates of nature. Wordsworth, in some sense, is saying man is part of this nature, um, is part of this, this whole life force that, that is here. And this is where his, his, his own being is, um, is best expressed, as he says, the anchor of my purest thoughts, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my soul. Um, so let me stop there. See if you all have, have questions about what's going on. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2022, Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. All rights reserved.